But last week, we began a series entitled Grow, and in this series, we're talking about things that, uh, that God's Word says about us as individuals, finding a way to grow in spite of obstacles that come into our lives. Amen? Well, uh, we can thrive, we can even prosper and grow in the midst of difficulties that come our way while we live life on this earth. Just a reminder, Rachel, if you'll show some of those pictures, we talked about just this example of you ever go in the woods and you see a tree and you wonder how in the world did that tree get its shape? Why is it shaped that way? How did it end up growing that way? And the truth is, is that each of these trees, they at some point in their life, they faced an obstacle, but they still found a way to grow. They still found a way to thrive in spite of that obstacle. It could have been weather. It could have been man-made. It could have been a, like that one's growing out of a car hood there. You know, it found a way to grow and prosper even in the midst of obstacles. And we're using that as an example of you and I, we have things that we pick up along the way in our lives. Things that come in that maybe it's from our family, our cultures, could even be our own fault. These obstacles that come that God never intended for us to live with and that Satan may have placed there as obstacles to hinder you or prevent you from growing. And we all face these kinds of obstacles and we all have to find a way to grow in spite of them. You know, it, we, could, we could have the choice to just give up when an obstacle comes. We're not going to grow any further. We're not going to go any farther. But Scripture teaches us that even when there are obstacles that we come across in our life, we can still grow and thrive in spite of them. Last week, we talked about addiction, how it's more than just drugs or alcohol, the things we normally talk about. But we saw in Scripture that addiction is anything that we want to stop doing, but we can't. And we said that it's a, at its root, addiction is a spiritual issue, and it's even idolatry. It is a form of idolatry where we worship a man-made thing that we have become a slave to. And we saw the promises in Scripture that we don't have to stay stuck or bound in addiction, but that we can be free from addiction by disconnecting from the world and connecting to God in prayer. We can find a way to grow past our addictions. And this week, we're going to continue this series, and we're going to focus on a common issue. I don't think I've ever heard a preacher preach from a pulpit ever in my life. And we're going to talk about tonight, today, we're talking about anger, growing above anger. All of us get angry at some point or another, right? But there can be a time where anger becomes something that controls us, something that is now, instead of just an expression of emotion, it's actually an obstacle in our lives, in our relationships, in our workplace. And you know, most people, we do one of two things with anger. We, uh, there's either those that stuff anger inside and you're like a turtle and when you get angry you just kind of stuff everything and and take it into hiding or there's those that get angry and you express it with this great and wonderful display of emotion when you get angry I think I would fall in the category more of a stuffer. I, when I'm angry, uh, you can ask Katie, <laughs> when I'm angry, I get quiet. Um, my, my jaw gets tight. I, kinda, I, I just kind of reserve myself. I might try and find a quiet place to go to hide away somewhere. But there's a point, even for us anger stuffers, where there's no more room to stuff. And if we haven't dealt with our anger, eventually it comes out and we can really blow up, Right? How many of you know, so don't raise your hand, don't point. USA Today, the newspaper published an article a while back, and it said, we exist in an age of rage. Here's some statistics from that article. Over 10 million children a year are abused by angry parents. 60% of murders 
occur after an angry argument. And over 4 million women in the U.S. are abused by angry husbands each year. These days, our news headlines are filled with emotional words of anger. There's outrage in politics. There's outrage over politically incorrect speech. There's outrage over historical monuments. There's rioting in the streets over racial tensions. There's protests against Wall Street. Social media is the absolute worst about this. These days, you can't disagree with someone's political views without becoming incensed with anger and writing hurtful, sinful comments on each other's posts. I see you. I'm friends with you on Facebook. I know what happens. And then there's the fake news articles that we see that they're slanted or biased from one end of the political spectrum or another. And their intention, they're intentionally crafted to get you angry at the other side. Even in our local small town newspapers, there's two separate murder trials going on in this county right now. Both of which seem to be the result of men becoming angry and losing control. You don't have to look very far in our society to realize we have an anger epidemic. We live in a divided, angry nation. We're given examples in media of angry people and told that they're the ones that we should emulate. We give our children video games with violence and fighting that only serves to rewire their neural pathways of their brains to get them predisposed to angry and violent reactions to difficulty. Media tells us to allow our anger to determine our vote when we go in the ballot box. And then media tells us when we don't like what politicians do or what juries decide that we should go to the streets and protest or even rioting in anger. We truly do live in an age of rage. We're witnessing an anger epidemic in our communities and in our society. Now all of those, those are broader issues in society, but what about you and me As individuals, has anger crept in and taken control? Just think about a few of these questions that they might relate to your personal life. And no raising hands or anything like that, but I want you to be open and honest with yourself when I ask you these questions. Number one, do you have difficulty compromising with others? Your spouse or coworkers, etc. Do you have difficulty finding compromise? Is it difficult to reach agreeable solutions without getting angry? Do you struggle with expressing your emotions in calm and healthy ways? Do you find yourself needing to punch or hit something like a wall to feel a release? When you get angry, do things end up broken in your home? Would you or your loved ones describe you as someone with a short fuse quickly and violently reacting? Do you find yourself getting trapped in the same arguments with friends and family members, reacting to similar triggers each time? Do you find yourself ignoring people or refusing to speak to them? Do you have inward aggression issues like negative self-talk when you, in your mind and your thoughts about yourself or even self-harm, physically harming your own body? Do you find yourself frequently or uncontrollably shouting or swearing or being physically violent or threatening? When you get angry, do you often turn to substances to help you regulate your emotions? Struggling with substance abuse or addiction like tobacco or alcohol, marijuana, 
hard illicit drugs or even prescription drugs. Are cycles of poor anger management taking a toll on your closest relationships, your family and your friends? Think about those for a minute. If you answered yes to a few of those, maybe you ought to sit up and pay attention. I want to be clear here. Anger is not necessarily sin. It's not sinful to have anger. There are times when it's justified to be angry. But I have found that many Christians hide behind the claim of righteous anger as an excuse for their poor behavior. Let me just tell you, when your emotions lead you to curse or wound others with your words or your actions or act violently or, or speak from prejudice like racism or sexism, you and I, we don't get to hide behind the claim of righteous anger anymore. That's just sin. It's quiet in here this morning. See, anger is not necessarily sin, but anger does make it easier to sin. Scripture says in your anger, be careful not to sin. And allowing yourself to lose control or uh, lose your better judgment is definitely sin. Allowing your, allowing your anger to harm, degrade, abuse, or neglect others is a sin. Deci disciplining your children out of anger instead of out of what's best for them is sin. Habitual anger issues is a real emotional, relational, and even psychological problem that needs to be acknowledged. You need to expose it. You need to deal with it. It needs to be treated, and God can heal it. Amen? Proverbs 29, 22. And kids, this is your verse in your bulletin. It says, an angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. What this passage is saying is that anger doesn't just exist out there on its own. Anger creates a chain reaction. It causes other things to take place. You might say, I just get angry and then get over it. But what this passage is saying is probably that's not true. Probably your anger has led to someone's feelings being hurt or relationship being damaged. Anger usually produces and multiplies problems. Proverbs 14, 17 says a quick tempered person does foolish things. Again, something happens in our anger that ignites other things in our lives and other problems in our lives. Anger produces things that we don't want in our own lives and we don't want in the lives of others. So it could be that the things we are doing that we don't like, we're doing because we've got an anger issue. So we need to get down to the cause of anger. James chapter 4 says this. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? This is the apostle writing to the church. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Notice the first thing he says about anger here. He says, they are desires that battle within you, inside of you. Many times we fail to see real change in our lives and real improvement in our behavior because we're looking at the outside instead of the real issue, the root issue inside of us. To really change, you have to deal with the internal, not just the external. Scripture always points to the inside. It always points to the inside. Verse 2 defines anger. He says, you want something, 
but you, you're not getting it. Think about times that you've been angry. Just think about the most recent time that you got angry. Think about that. It was probably over an unmet expectation. It was probably you expected something to happen. You expected someone to do something. You expected to be treated a certain way, and you weren't, or it didn't happen, or they didn't treat you that certain way. And anger is a negative reaction to unmet expectations. When life didn't meet the expectation that you had, when things didn't work out the way you thought they should, you got angry. Example, you're mad at the kids because they didn't clean their room when you asked them to. You expected that to be done and they didn't do it. You got angry. You're mad at your spouse because something they could have done or could have said to you. You're mad at the neighbors because you think they should have taken their Christmas lights down a few weeks ago and they haven't yet. You're mad at yourself because you know better. You expected better out of yourself, and when you still failed, you even got mad at yourself. You wanted something, and you didn't get it. And then the next phrase in that passage, he says, you wanted something, you didn't get it. You kill, and you covet. These are the results of not getting what you want. Look at something. Both of those are aimed at other people. Kill and covet. Anger produces its worst outcome when it's taken to another person and even more so when that person isn't even the problem. Example, you didn't get what you wanted at work or things didn't go your way at work and you come home and take it out on your family and on those closest to you. You kill and you covet. Now, most of us probably in here, we're not on trial for murder because we got angry, but you can kill relationships with your anger. You can kill a marriage with your anger. You can kill a relationship with a son or a daughter because of your anger. And here's the truth bomb. I want to drop something on you about anger, a truth bomb. Anger is a personal problem. Anger is not about them. Anger is never about them. Anger is always about me. Listen, you will never grow above anger until you take responsibility for your own anger. No more anger blame game. No more. If they would just quit, if he just wouldn't say that, if she would just, he made me my kids just, no, no, no. Anger is my problem. It is not their problem. Anger is my issue. Listen, people can't make you angry. You choose, I choose to respond in anger. And as long as I continue to say, he made me angry or she made me angry, what you're really saying is that he or she is your master and you are their slave. That they can make you do something. They can make you respond in a certain way. You are allowing choices of other people, words of other people, and actions of other people to dictate your behavior. And guess what? That means you're a slave. That means you're allowing that person to run your life and to rule your life. That's slavery and that's bondage. So the first step to growing above anger in your life is to take responsibility for your own anger and quit blaming someone else for your bad behavior quiet in here. See, because anger is about me and it's not about them, and therefore anger is never worked out in a godly way with someone else. Once you're angry, you're not going to work it out on a personal level with them. Now, you can have conflict resolution, you can make compromise, you can solve the problem, but the anger issue that you have can only be worked out with God, with your Creator. That's why James said next in that passage, he says, you have not 
because you haven't asked God. You're quarreling among each other. You're fighting because you didn't get what you wanted. You kill and you covet, and then you quit asking God to come in and deal with it, and now you've created a cycle of an anger problem in your life. You don't ask God. He says in that moment when what we have is anger, what we have is that we're not getting what we wanted. We are to take that thing to God. And the only way to grow above anger is to take our anger to God and ask him to do an inner work within us to change the disposition of our heart. Because it's about the inner desires within you and me. Anytime that frustration or anger comes up within us, we are to go to God. It should be our reflex as believers that anytime something irritates us, anytime anything gets under our skin, we have to ask him, what do I do with this? And have him do a work in us. God, it's like a light on your dashboard in your car, a warning light. When that anger rises up and says, you need to go get this checked out. There's something internal in this vehicle that's not working right. And you need to go to someone who knows how to fix it to deal with it. And so anger is like that. You need to go to the one who created you, who knows the human heart and the human condition better than anyone else and say, okay, God, I know it's not about them. This is really a me issue. It's really my problem. And so, God, the only one who can fix inside of me and within me is you. And so I'm taking this issue to you. And here's the work that he wants to do. God wants you to know that the situation might not change, the people might not change, but that he can do a work in you so that these things that irritate and annoy and frustrate you, they don't have to affect you or be masters over you in your life. They don't have to guide or shape or mold or define you and I because the only one able to shape and guide and mold us correctly is God. When we get, feel angry and it builds up, it's never about them. It's always about me. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. It is not about them. It's about me. Matthew 16 is the passage I had you ch- turn to. Interesting scripture. It's probably very familiar. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. See, the disciples were looking for Jesus to set everything right in Israel. They were oppressed. They were in captivity to an oppressive Roman government. And they were looking for a Messiah who would set things right for them. They were looking for a coming king to rule and establish justice. They had expectations on Jesus to do it the way they thought it should be done. So Peter's response is a response of anger when the expectation he had of Jesus isn't getting met. 
See, G Peter wasn't on his radar for Jesus to die a criminal's death. It was on Peter's radar that Jesus was going to lead a resur uh, uh, an insurrection against the, the Roman government and set the nation of Israel free politically. And so when Jesus says, that's not happening, what you expect of me, I'm not going to do. Instead, I'm going to go and die and suffer for you. Peter's response to that unmet expectation was anger. The scripture says that he rebuked him. And I think most of us can even look at Peter and say, well, that was noble. He was just being protective over Jesus and, and that kind of thing. But that's righteous anger, right? He's defending Jesus. But Jesus saw through veiled selfishness. It was true uh, that, that Peter said, well, I don't want you to die. But notice the scripture said here, it said when Jesus rebuked him, he said, you don't have in mind the things of God. What you have in mind is the things of men. In other words, you're looking at this from a flesh perspective. You're looking at this from a selfish perspective. You wanted me to do one thing and I'm not doing it and therefore you're angry. Veiled selfishness. It was selfish expectations hiding behind some tough guy bravado. He wasn't getting what he wanted, so he got angry at Jesus. And after correcting Peter, Jesus lovingly turns to the whole group and he teaches them a principle. It's a principle we call the crucified life. See, the crucified life is the cure to your anger issue. If you want to get control of an anger issue, something has to die. We have to live a crucified life. This issue is that our responses to the craziness of the world around us, they cause us angst, they, they cause us to respond in anger. They're making us frustrated. They're stirring up conflict among us and among others. And the time has not come for the world to stop being crazy yet. So the work to be done has to be something on the inside of us. And in order for you to find peace in a crazy world, something in you has to die. The result is the crucified life. Galatians 2.20, Paul is writing and he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul wrote again in 1 Corinthians 15.31, he said, I die every day. He brings out a point here. Paul is saying that this isn't just a one-time thing where you got saved and you said, okay, I'm dying to the old man and I went to an altar and things in the pasture done. No, he's saying it is a daily process of losing our lives to Jesus, to surrendering our lives to Jesus, to have, it, have a habit of daily surrendering my preferences, my desires, my ideas, my emotions, all of that to God, and it has to be every day. Jesus, he breaks this into three parts. He says, number one, deny yourself. In other words, put aside the things that you desire and pray for God's desires to rule your day, not your own. What do you want from me today, Lord? Every day waking up and bringing ourselves to God, saying, I surrender to you. You are my God, and I need you to, to mold and shape my expectations to what you would have them be and not what I would have them be. Ask God, what is, what is that emotion or that, that, um, that feeling that is shaping and molding me more than you? 
And God, I need you to deal with that. I need you to change those expectations. So deny yourself, number one. Number two, take up your cross. Part of our nature still wants things that God didn't intend for us. We still even want sin sometimes, and we find sin pleasurable for a season. There are desires that are more of a reflex than an active thought. And today we know we're struggling with this specific person or this specific situation, and Taking up your cross means to get ahead of that thing and saying, even though I know this might be a point of frustration or a point of conflict in my life, I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to ask God to help me love that person that I have to work next to all day, even when they're difficult. I'm going to have ask the Lord to help me watch my temperament today when they rub me the wrong way. Help me not be controlled by my temper. And this is called crucifying your flesh. The way I want to respond, the way that my body and my flesh and my sin nature wants to respond, God, I need you to kill that and give me your desires and give me your response. Help me walk in your ways. Help me respond the way you would respond. Take up your cross, crucifying your flesh. These deep cravings and things that seem uncontrollably controllable, we have to give them over to God. Romans 6 says this. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin could be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We talked last week about fasting, and we talked about how fasting is, is practice for when temptation comes, that fasting is you telling your most basic need no so that you can connect with God instead. And so even that is helping you live a crucified life. So just like fasting can help you deal with some, some issues and addiction, fasting can help you with anger because it's telling your most gut-wrenching, your, your, your gut reactions to situations no, and you're, you're building up your spirit, man, by putting under discipline your flesh. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then third, follow me. That's the key. See, there's a whole lot of other religions out there that practice self-denial that practice fasting, that practice these different things. There's Hindus over there that they'll live, all, they'll live off of one grain of rice a day, and they'll, they'll call that some sort of spiritual action, that kind of thing. Here's the difference. All those other things are just talking about things to stop doing. The difference in the Christian life is, okay, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross, but then I have a purpose. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow the Messiah. I'm going to follow him wherever he leads me. I'm going to follow him wherever he guides me. I'm going to follow his example of how to speak to other people, how to treat other people, how to deal with other people. I'm going to follow his example of even treating those who are hateful to me and even do physical harm to me. I'm going to treat them with kindness, with love and forgiveness. That's a tough, tall order. But when you're a believer and when you have the Holy Spirit uh, living inside of you and flowing through you, he will give you the supernatural ability to follow Jesus and his example, even in difficult situations. Second Corinthians 6, 17 says this, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Katie, would you come? Come out. And be separate. I started this off illustrating for us the age of rage that we live in. And the anger epidemic in our society. 
even voting blocks in U.S. politics that label and put American evangelicals and Bible-believing Christians in a certain category. And it's the saddest thing to turn on the news and see that someone that's supposed to be representing love and the love of God and the love of Jesus and forgiveness, that the thing that categorizes us in media is our anger. Come out and be separate. We are called to be different than the news media we watch. We're called to be different than the political atmosphere around us right now. Come out and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and then I will receive you. Being received by God means that you've got to not receive some other things. You've got to stand against the current and culture and say, even though the world is responding to everything in anger, I'm not. I'm going to respond in love. I'm going to respond in forgiveness. I'm going to respond in kindness. To follow Jesus means to be separate from the world. What are you connected to that's not giving life? For some of us, it's TV or social media. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a romantic relationship. Come out and be separate. There has to be separation that is noticeable without us having to wear a t-shirt or a bumper sticker on our car. It has to be noticeable in how we live. Anger is not about the people around you. It's not about your wife or your husband. It's not about your children. It's not about your boss. It's not about the circumstances you're in. Anger is something on the inside of you and I that God wants to work on. Anger is that light on the dashboard saying, hey, there's a problem and you need to go to the one who made, who made you in order to get it fixed. When we feel angry, we can automatically know that that is a sign that God, there's an area of my life that God still wants to work on. There's an area of my life that still hasn't reached perfection and God wants to deal with it. See, listen, a lot of times we keep wanting for God to change our circumstances, but God wants to change us. That's the difficulty sometimes with Christianity is, see, we, we pray and we tell God how we think things ought to go, but then he turns around and say, well, I'm going to tell you how you ought to change. I can't control other people. I can't control uh, other, other responses to me, but I can, re I can control how I respond and how I act in my disposition. Come out from them and be separate, touching no unclean thing, I'll receive you and I'll be a father to you.